Welcome to the Fiction Talks podcast produced by the Center for Fiction in New York City. I'm Noreen Tomasi, Executive Director of the Center. Fiction Talks features new exclusive interviews with award-winning novelists, as well as remastered recordings of literary giants who have appeared at our building in New York City. This evening, I'm here with award-winning author Paula Farge to discuss his new novel, The Night Ocean. The Night Ocean tells the story of H.P. Lovecraft, one of America's most influential horror writers, and one of his greatest fans, Robert Barlow. When Barlow was 16, he wrote to Lovecraft and invited him to Florida, where the usually reclusive writer stayed with Barlow and his family for nearly two months. Their relationship was the impetus for this novel, which manages to be both complex and innovative and also a page-turner. We are going to begin with Paul reading from the novel's opening pages. The narrator is a psychotherapist whose husband, Charlie, has disappeared. Paul? Thanks, Noreen. The part I'm going to read is from the beginning of the novel, and it sets up one of the stories that, uh, that the book follows. Elsie Spinks came into our lives thanks to Charlie's friend Magnus, whom I still see sometimes, sitting in a cafe on Avenue B, or walking his dog in Tompkins Square Park. I avoid him. Magnus is, or used to be, a poet. He published a book in the 1970s, and one of his poems was turned into a song by the holy modal rounders, whose music Charlie tried to explain to me in vain. At one point, Magnus taught classes at City College. Now, as far as I know, he lives on disability and the remains of an inheritance. He is walrus-shaped, with a shock of white hair and a gnawed walrus mustache. Charlie used to say that Magnus looks the way Theodore Roosevelt would have looked if Roosevelt had come of age in Greenwich Village in the 1950s, but that tells you more about Charlie's powers of idealization than it does about Magnus himself. I don't know how the two of them met. What I do know is that Charlie was planning to write a profile of Magnus, but then one day in the summer of 2006, the two of them started talking about H.P. Lovecraft, whose stories, it turned out, they both admired. Who's that, I asked. You don't know, Charlie asked. Only the greatest American horror writer since Poe. Lovecraft was the author of The Call of Cthulhu, At the Mountains of Madness, and other works I hadn't heard of. His stories, Charlie said, were about a universe inhabited by powerful alien beings who feel about humanity the way a person coming home from a long trip might feel about an infestation of spiders. Sounds cheerful, I said. I got a kick out of them in junior high school, Charlie said. In fact, he went on, blushing, Eric and I started a cult of Cthulhu. We sewed ourselves black robes and walked up and down Broadway in the middle of the night, holding signs that read, The end of the world is nigh. Give to the cult of Cthulhu. In retrospect, it was suicidal, but nothing bad ever happened to us. I think we must have been so weird that people left us alone, a half-black kid and a Puerto Rican kid stumping for Cthulhu. We could have been poster children for the city of New York, you didn't really believe in Cthulhu, did you, I asked. No, Charlie said, but it was so much fun to pretend we did believe. It was a lot like believing. I'm sure, he added, when he saw my worried expression, 
If Cthulhu had actually appeared, I would have been scared shitless. Magnus, who knew everything about everything or pretended to, told Charlie that he had met one of Lovecraft's friends, a fellow named Sam Loveman, who owned a used bookshop on 4th Avenue. Those were their real names, Charlie said, Lovecraft and Loveman, which was ironic, because if there was anything they didn't know about, it was love. Anyway, this was in the 1970s, when Sam Loveman was very old and Magnus was looking for books by the English writer Hubert Crackenthorpe, a realist who had drowned himself in the Seine at the age of 26. Loveman turned out to be a Crackenthorpe fanatic, possibly the only such person in the world. He immediately became fond of Magnus. They'd spend hours in Loveman's second-floor shop, sitting on draftsman stools, talking about their beloved forgotten writers, and it came to light that Loveman had known H.P. Lovecraft in the 1920s and 30s. What was he like, Magnus asked, dazzled. Howard was a real New England gentleman, Loveman said, but as their conversation went on, he revealed some things about Lovecraft that weren't exactly pleasant. Lovecraft had hated the Jews, black people, Asians, Arabs. He had despised women. In the end, Loveman said, I think the only person he ever cared about was Bobby Barlow, and even about him, I'm not sure. Barlow? Magnus asked. Robert Barlow, Loveman said, with a kind of bitter sadness mixed with puzzlement. He was Howard's literary executor. You don't know the story? Magnus shook his head. Well, Loveman said, Barlow was a very assiduous fan who lived in Florida. He wrote letters to Howard, and they became friends. Finally, in the summer of 1934, Barlow invited Howard to visit him, and Howard went. Great passage, Paul. Thank you very much. I am so curious about your own connection to Lovecraft and why you chose to center a novel on this enormously influential writer, but also very problematic writer. Right. Yeah, the things that Loveman says about Lovecraft were true. He was a bigot, he was a xenophobe, he was an anti-Semite, and he was also a great horror writer who transformed his fears and his insecurities, his anxieties about the world into short stories and novels that continue to find readers and to shape people's imagination. And in a way, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write about him, because he's so complicated and so problematic and yet he's such an interesting writer. It was a, you know, a way to tell a story about how the materials of life and all their ugliness and difficulty get transformed into fiction. When did you first read Lovecraft? I started reading Lovecraft when I was in middle school. I must have been 10 or 11 years old when I first found his stories, and I was captivated by them. You know, he's a very gloomy writer. His stories are set in a world which, as Charlie says, is populated by these monstrous alien beings, which are much more powerful than we are. And generally speaking, we don't stand a chance against them. Um, the best thing that that can happen to a human in Lovecraft stories is, generally speaking, that they'll go mad. It's a very grim place to be. 
But for a kid coming to understand the adult world, and also for a kid growing up in New York City in the 1970s and 80s, which was a fairly gloomy time in the city's history, something about that cosmos rang true. And I thought, wow, this is somebody who's, you know, telling me a story that I can relate to. I assume, though, that there were many years between the time you discovered Lovecraft and the time you wrote this novel where you didn't read him at all, where you were disconnected from his work in some way. Yeah, no, I I went through a Lovecraft phase which culminated with the story that I have Charlie tell in the part I just read. He's walking up and down Broadway holding a sign that says the end of the world is nigh give to the cult of Cthulhu. And, you know, that's something that I did for better or worse. And, you know, there was no way to go farther into Lovecraft than that, you know, at least not for me. And my enthusiasm for him waned as I discovered other writers and became interested in other kinds of writing, and my life changed. But in the winter of 2005, I met the poet and novelist Robert Kelly, whose work I had admired for years, and he told me that story about Lovecraft and Barlow and how Lovecraft had gone to visit this young fan named Robert Barlow in Florida in the summer of 1934, and they'd spent a surprisingly long amount of time together. And Barlow was, of course, 16 at that point. Lovecraft was 43. And there was a question, well, you know, why did Lovecraft spend eight weeks hanging out in really the middle of nowhere with a 16-year-old fan? And part of the answer turned out to be that Barlow was a very interesting person. He was very smart. He was a prodigy. He was a talented writer, a painter, a sculptor, a bookbinder. Um, he did a lot of things with a lot of talent and a lot of enthusiasm. So he was an engaging person to be around. The rest of his life was equally fascinating. He and Lovecraft remained friends until Lovecraft's death in 1937. And then Barlow was uh, Lovecraft's literary executor. And that didn't go very well. Barlow was too disorganized to do that job. And he went on to have another life or even several other lives as a poet in the San Francisco Bay Area and as an anthropologist in Mexico, where he became one of the world's great authorities on the language and civilization of the Aztecs. And Robert told me these things, and I thought that is a a wonderful subject for a book I'd love to write about Lovecraft and Barlow. And You know, in a way, I wanted to return to my childhood fascination with Lovecraft, but in a way, the part of the story that really excited me was Barlow. It's so interesting that the story centers on Barlow and on Lovecraft and is a story about love and the failure of love. While you were reading, I was noting not only in the names, but how often the word love is repeated. It's a story about love and the failure of love in which the two main characters are so isolated and unable to love in certain ways. And I found that intriguing. For our listeners, the novel's narrator is the wife of Charlie, who we've just been introduced to in the section that Paul read. And there is a story about the relationship of Charlie and Marina as well. And the book opens with the mysterious, maybe, suicide of Charlie. So that's a parallel story as well. And I was especially intrigued that you chose Marina as the narrator for all these interlocking stories. Can you talk a little bit about why? 
I think the book is about love. You know, it's a kind of nested series of love stories, and some of them go better than others, but they're about the difficulty of love and the ways that people complicate their own lives and get in the way of being in love or of, of managing to love each other. And it's about the way that people use love to try to overcome isolation and sometimes succeed in that project and sometimes uh, fail. And the story of Charlie and Marina is, you know, is one of those stories. I chose Marina to narrate the book because I wanted it to be told by someone who isn't a Lovecraft fan. I wanted the story not to assume that the reader knows anything about who H.P. Lovecraft was or why anybody still reads him or cares about him or thinks about him. So Marina is really an outsider. She was never a fan the way Charlie was. She's never even heard of him. And Charlie has to tell her the story from the beginning. So she hears the story, and she's able to pass it on to us. And that way, a reader uh, of the Night Ocean who doesn't know anything about Lovecraft and doesn't have any particular reason to care about Lovecraft might find the story interesting. Because, you know, it is a story about H.P. Lovecraft and Barlow, among other things, but it's not a story that depends on you being a Lovecraft fan. It's a story about love. It's a story about horror in some ways. It's a story about telling stories. And I wanted it to be accessible to people who care about, you know, any of those things. And a story about friendship and the failure of friendship and a story about the narratives we create for ourselves and how they free us and also how they imprison us. It's a book about a lot of things. Yeah. One of the things that is so interesting to me is it has all of the forward propulsion of a thriller, and that interests me a great deal, that these unfolding mysteries are structured in the way that they are. And so as a reader, and I'm a reader, luckily Marina was the narrator for me because I don't know very much about Lovecraft, but... I think that I expected each story to be the truth. And if I'm not giving away too much to our listeners, that expectation is frequently thwarted in the way the structure unfolds. So you believe that you know the truth. And interestingly, the characters believe they know the truth about themselves. So it's an intricately structured novel that is a page-turner. Mm, thank and you. And so... How exactly did you decide on that kind of structure? I knew from the very beginning that I wanted the book to sort of pass from one truth to another. I wanted there to be a feeling of progressive revelation, that you're getting closer maybe to the truth about what Lovecraft was like and what Barlow was like, and also you're getting closer to the truths that the various characters around them have in their hearts. You're getting closer to Charlie you're getting closer to Marina. You have a feeling not just of, of, you know, uncovering the kind of central mystery of the plot, but of uncovering the mystery of each of the characters. And that's exactly right. And so that was the challenge in structuring the novel. And I tried a number of different approaches to narrating it before I hit on the one that I finally used. But the structure of the mystery, beginning with Charlie's, uh, you know, 
possibly suicide, possibly disappearance, seemed like a good way into the story because it creates a curiosity. It gives you a feeling of needing to go on in order to find something out. That mystery recurs throughout the book, and it comes back in the in the novel's final pages. But other mysteries arise along the way. Once you've become curious about Charlie, then you can maybe start to become curious about Lovecraft and Barlow. And once you become curious about them, you can be curious about some of the other characters who appear in the book who have mysterious lives and mysterious stories of their own. And so I'm wondering about your process. Is this a book that took an enormous amount of rewrites? Is this a book that came to you page by page? Is a kind of miracle, and then you did one rewrite? I did a lot of work up front before I started writing the book. I did a lot of work to learn who the characters were, because many, if not most, of the characters in the novel are historical people, Lovecraft, Sam Loveman, Barlow, and many more. And I tried to learn as much as I could about their lives and their world so that by the time I started writing, I had a fairly detailed sense of how I wanted to imagine them and what I knew about them and how their lives fit together. And I was able to draw on that when I was writing so that the book was not extensively rewritten. You know, I wrote to the end and then I had to write to the end again because... You never get it quite right the first time or, you know, rarely. And at that point, it was more or less, you know, the way it is. There were some things that I had to go back in and fix. But I had known well enough, I guess, how I wanted it to go that uh, by the time I actually started writing it, I was able just to go forward. Although I think maybe in the middle of every book or in the middle of a lot of books, there's a moment of panic of thinking, you know, is this really what I'm going to do? Am I really going to go forward with this plan, you know, this mad scheme? And I had that. And, uh, you know, and then I said, yes, I guess it is. And I I wrote the rest of the book. I was intrigued also by the fact that the novel centers on an imagined book. Yes, the book that's called The Erotonomicon, which is supposed to be H.P. Lovecraft's sexual diary, which would be a very strange document if it existed, And in the world of the novel, there are these long excerpts from it in which Lovecraft describes his scandalous sexual relations with young men and boys. And the book is published after Lovecraft's death and causes a giant scandal in the world of H.P. Lovecraft fandom because no one wants to think of this beloved writer as having had sex with men and with male children. I mean, what a horrible thought. Lovecraft's horror is one thing, but this is a completely different order of horrible. And people turn on Lovecraft, and then it it begins to become suspected that the, that the erotonomicon, this erotic diary, is in fact a hoax that's been perpetrated for somewhat nefarious reasons. Or maybe they're not nefarious. <laughs> when I was reading those sections, there were moments when I was laughing out loud. It was very funny, but also moments that I found so sad in that diary, that imagined diary, which is all about both desire and the failure of connection, the failure of love. Yeah. In real life, Lovecraft, as far as we know, did not have a very developed romantic life. He did have a lot of connections to people, mostly through letters. He wrote uh, an enormous number of letters during his lifetime. Some people have estimated that he wrote around 100,000 letters, which is 
a lot when you consider that he died at the age of 46. So he had a lot of connection, but you can feel maybe reading a little bit about him that he was someone who was hungry for connection, that he was someone who felt that there was a gap that needed to be filled. And having these very intense and protracted and engaged epistolary friendships was a way for him to fill that gap. And in the erotic diary, I imagine him trying to fill that gap a different way and maybe less successfully, actually, than he did in life, that he's seeking for some kind of direct physical satisfaction, which he can't quite find. And you said that exploration of his sexuality against McCarthyism and how dangerous it was to be gay at that time, and also about one of the characters. I don't want to spoil too much for the listeners, but one of the characters' decisions about whether to speak about his friends or not, and the kind of fear that I felt underpinned that decision on his part. Yeah, I mean, well, that was you know one of the big questions for the people who were summoned to testify before the Un-American Activities Committee was, do you name names? Or don't you? And if you don't, you suffer the consequences, you know, professional ruin and possibly prison. For me, one thing that that period of time of American history reminds me is that telling stories is not a neutral act. You know, we think of of telling stories about people in some ways as being a little divorced from life. But this is a moment when the stories that you told about people were enormously consequential. Right? If you told a story about someone and implicated them as a homosexual or as a communist, that was a very powerful thing to do, and it had very drastic consequences. And there's a kind of horror that surrounds that, right? which isn't the horror of extra-cosmic beings with tentacles. It's the horror of human beings who are willing to believe the worst about each other and who are willing to act out of fear and out of a kind of violent disregard for other people's lives. So, you know, that's something that that I wanted to talk about in the book. I noted that one of the people who appears as a character in that section is Roy Cohn, who was a friend of our current president until he discovered that Roy Cohn had AIDS, and then he quite suddenly dropped him. That section for me had a lot of resonance with our current political situation. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little. It's not something that I planned as I was writing The Night Ocean. I didn't have any idea which way the the election was going to go. And I certainly didn't imagine that that Trump would be elected. But now we, we found ourselves in this period when stories have a lot of power again. And there's also a lot of fear and a lot of doubt. You know, there's a lot of sense that what we're being told is not the truth and that there's there's a concealed truth maybe lying behind the apparent truth. And those were all things that I was absolutely interested in thinking about when I set out to write the book. The way that one truth gives way to another truth, the way that people tell stories, not just to reveal themselves, but also to conceal themselves. And also the way that a certain kind of person can participate in falsehood. I almost want to say it's not even malicious, although I think it it quite often has very malicious effects, and maybe it, it is malicious, but just out of a kind of hunger for attention, right? You become a storyteller, a fabulist, a a teller of tall tales, not just 
because you have something to hide, but because you want to be seen, because you want to be noticed. And that was certainly true of Roy Cohn. You know, Cohn was probably, to some degree, an anti-communist out of conviction, but his deepest conviction seems to have been that there was no such thing as bad publicity, and that the, the point of doing what he did was to get his name in the papers. You know, that was the greatest gratification he could imagine, and in a way, I think that's the lesson that he taught our sitting president, that the most important thing is just to be seen, and that there's no price that's not worth paying to serve that purpose. And the Roy Cohn that was seen was, of course, not, both was, but also to a large degree wasn't the real Roy Cohn. What struck me as I was reading the book was how engaged the characters, some of them are, in the story they tell about themselves. And there's a passage somewhere where one of the characters makes the case that well, he really is this other person because he's inhabited by this other person. And I feel that is the real danger in this narrative of the self, that when someone in the news, in politics, begins to believe the narrative is more important than the truth, they've lost some kind of compass. And that happens in the book, on and off to characters. Yeah, that there's a way in which you can lose track of yourself, right? You can really set yourself aside so effectively that you cease to have a true self and you become the result of your own storytelling and of, I guess, the stories that other people tell about you. And in a way, that's the most terrifying fate of all, right? Is to have no self, to be a person who has successfully made themselves into a lie. What a scary thought that you would just have no truth in you at all. It makes it especially intriguing that you decided that Marina would be a psychoanalyst, a person who listens to stories and tries to interpret them for a living. Yeah, and a person whose job it is to find her patient's inner truth, right, to get through all the layers of defense and and obfuscation and to kind of come to a, a, a convincingly true story about that person's life. Although, of course, you know, in analysis, as everywhere else, there's always the question, did you reach bedrock? Or is the story that you found really just another story? When the book was published, what was the reaction of the Lovecraft community, if there still is one, and of horror and, to some degree, sci-fi and fantasy fans. Overall, it's been, I think, surprisingly good. There's a very active Lovecraft community. There's an active and delightful Lovecraft fan community, and I've gone to Lovecraft conventions, and they're do you still have your old costume? <laughs> I don't have my old costume, but uh, but I have gone to conventions where people wear costumes, and there's a lot of exuberant weirdness on display in those spaces. I was worried that people who participate in that world very seriously and more seriously than I do would feel offended by the book or would feel territorial about it and, and would reject the night ocean on those grounds. And I'm surprised by the degree to which that has not happened. I think there are people in the Lovecraft community who object or take issue with the way that I represent Lovecraft in the novel. And there are a number of people who've expressed the feeling on social media that the book just isn't for them, and that's fine. You know, it's a book for whoever wants to read it. I'd like to end with one last question about the title. 
The Night Ocean. Can you tell us a little bit about the title and the story? Yeah, of course. So The Night Ocean was the title of a short story written by Robert Barlow, and he would write short fiction, and then he would send uh, his stories to Lovecraft, who would edit them and revise them, and in some cases rewrite them. The Night Ocean was the last story that Barlow sent to Lovecraft for comments, and Lovecraft gave him some notes on it, and it was published just a few months before Lovecraft died. It was one of the last pieces of fiction Lovecraft ever worked on, and also one of the last pieces of fiction Barlow ever worked on, because after Lovecraft's death, he, his life went in another direction towards poetry and scholarship. Uh, the Night Ocean is about an artist who goes to a beach town to take a vacation, and while he's there, he sees these strange figures swimming in the ocean, and he tries to understand who they are and what they might be doing. And the story leaves us not with the revelation of the identity or the purpose of these strange fish-like beings that he's seen, but with a feeling of mystery, of there being a kind of fundamental unknowability to, to the universe and to life. It's a beautifully written story. It's a very sad story in some ways. It resolves on this note of just life is short. You know, it, human beings will be on the planet for only so long. Um, what we can be sure of is that the ocean will go on without us and that it'll still be here long after we're gone, but that our attempts to know things are, are a little bit doomed. I thought about that story as capturing something of Barlow's spirit. He was a melancholy person who often saw the, the sad aspect of life. And I also thought about it as being a little bit a story about Barlow trying to see Lovecraft. I think Barlow did feel something quite strong for Lovecraft, and he spent the rest of his life you know, still feeling it and missing Lovecraft. I imagine him as the artist on the beach trying to communicate with this strange creature whose ways he, he can't quite understand, and that, in a way, felt like a, a good central image for the novel. It's a beautiful image. Thank you very much, Paul. Oh, thank you, Noreen. <laughs> <laughs> 